My name is uh, uh, Carlos. If this is your first time here, and I want you to know that wherever you are on your journey of faith, um, that you are welcome in this place. Part of the reason why we started this church was so that anybody, um, regardless of where you are in your journey with God, um, you would be able to have and come to a place where you can ask the big questions. And today, some of those questions arise out of this passage that we just read here in Isaiah uh, chapter 35. And so I want to invite you uh, just to, you know, wherever you are this morning to pray with me as we look um, at this text. Would you do that? Let's pray. Hmm. Father, thank you for reminding us today that that longing for things to be made right that you've put in human beings that this is something that comes from you and is a need that is met by you. I pray that as we meditate on Christmas, Lord, we would see the promise that you have made to all of us, Lord. I pray that you would meet us, Lord, wherever we are, for those that are joyful here and excited, for those who are wondering or those who have questions, Father, please, Holy Spirit, Come and meet us in a very personal way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have to confess to you, I love Christmas. And at the same time, Christmas can oftentimes be a, a season of great sadness for some. We are surrounded by this cacophony of sounds of joy and cheer and the aroma of cider and, and date pine, okay? Date pine, not regular pine, date pine, because it's wet out there and it's humid in the midst of our Christmas. And there's hot chocolate and there's the rush of wanting to get gifts for family and friends. Now we can do that online with a click. Do you remember those days where that didn't exist? All of that holiday ambiance can sometimes create a dissonance with what's actually going on inside the heart of many people. For some, the in-your-face smiles and the Christmas bells, they don't announce a time of rejoicing, but they sound more like an annoying alarm clock that wakes you up to reality. The reality that the year's almost over and those goals that you had maybe didn't get met. Or it wakes you up to the reality of the disappointments in life or this could be a season where you begin to remember the friends or the family members that you may have lost along the way, the unresolved conflicts, the opportunities that you maybe didn't take and the prayers that have seemingly gone unanswered. One of the things I love about the advent of Jesus and Christmas and the way that the Bible speaks about the coming of the Savior is that he meets humanity in the midst of that tension. The Bible doesn't avoid and put a veneer of happiness over Christmas. Instead, it's like a ray of light that blazes through that tension. Because even though there's astounding miracles that surround the narrative of the birth of Jesus, there is also great grief 
during the Christmas story. There's so much pain and suffering that we sing that there is a weary world. The weary world rejoices. It anticipates that the pain that we sometimes experience is going to come to an end at some time because sometimes it's unbearable. It anticipates that one day our pain is going to be resolved once and for all. And that there is a coming of somebody, a king, a redeemer who's going to heal the issues that are in the world and also inside of our souls. So when we read a text like Isaiah 35, which looks forward, the people of Israel are hearing the prophet Isaiah. And he's looking ahead at the promises of God. It's like he answers the question, what do we do now, this Christmas, when we encounter suffering and faithlessness and apathy? How do we move forward? I appreciate how God has different tonics, different ailments in the scriptures on how to deal with our hopelessness. It's not just like a one size fits all. The more that you read the Bible, the more that you realize that God has a whole toolbox of things that will infuse our souls with hope. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of things. And I want to share that with you because even if you're here and your circumstances are amazing, And you're walking around and you're hearing these songs and you're like, what's wrong with all these sad people? (laughs) Even if you're in that place today, there's still great pain around the world and in your own neighborhood. And because we're all interconnected, there is no way that you will avoid that. It will always impact you. Even if you try to close your eyes or like we say in Spanish, you know, to try to hide the sun with one eye. Even if you try to do that, it's still there. Even if you try to live like a hermit and move to the middle of nowhere, the suffering of the world will come and find you. Even if you have a disposition like mine, which is very optimistic, I am that person that wakes up in the morning happy. (laughs) Unfortunately, the longer you live, the more you have to just face the reality that we live in a world where there is incomprehensible pain and injustice. And so during Christmas, we're arrested with this reality of the human condition. But in this text, we're confronted with this even greater reality. It's a vision of unstoppable joy. And it's so grand that when you first read it, at least for me, it it makes me question whether or not I actually believe that that's the reality that's coming for me. I'm like, can this be true? You see, the Lord has different arrows in his quiver of hope. Sometimes, like we heard last week, God during Christmas will remind us that he is a God of peace. That if you're here and you're anxious, he can meet you with peace in any situation. Sometimes God will remind us of his unconditional love, that if you're here and you've messed up and you've blown it and you decided to come back to church for some reason and you feel a sense of shame, God is waiting with his arms open wide, ready to welcome you home. And sometimes the way that God will infuse our souls with hope is by giving us this magnificent vision of the future that awaits those who put their trust in him. 
So if you're here and you're able to hang on to that promise, if you're able to see it not just as something that is too good to be true, but that this is actually reality, that this is what awaits you, that if you have a relationship with him, this is what's most real, this home that he's been preparing for you. If you're able to receive that promise, then that can fill your heart this Christmas with this hope in the midst of the suffering that we endure now. Isaiah 35 gives us a vision of heaven, the future that awaits us. We have a vision of ultimate reality, and it rests on this promise. What's the promise? What's the promise? Look at the, look at the text with me one more time. Look at this beautiful poem in Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wild flower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. If you're here and you uh, are coming to church for the first time or the first time in a long time. What is, what is the kind of promise that God gives us of heaven? Well, number one, it's a promise of restoration. It's a promise of restoration. It is the undoing of what happened in the garden of Eden. If you want to understand Christianity, then part of what you have to do is understand the first three chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Adam and Eve, they sin. And the consequences of sin are set in motion, and we're still experiencing those consequences today. Part of that consequence is that we have been there's there's a there's a there's a veil between us and God. There is a separation that is caused by sin. Secondly, we read in Genesis chapter three that now humanity experiences pain and relational frustration. If you read that chapter, you'll see that everybody's blaming everybody. Adam goes like this, she gave me some fruit. Eve goes like, it was the serpent, the devil who deceived me. And then Adam even goes like, the woman you gave me, God. <laughs> it's blaming all around. We see that there is this curse that even the marriage relationship, as good as your marriage is, there will be strain in those relationships. That even at the best of friendships, there will be power dynamics at some point. So there's pain and relational frustration. There is separation from God. There's also vocational struggle. What I mean by that is this. The ground in Genesis chapter 3, not, not mankind, the ground is cursed. It's cursed. And now work is not simply this incredible creative endeavor. But it's also an assignment that involves pain and struggle. 
the, the world is not working well for us. Like, listen, there may be great advances in technology, but sometimes getting things done is really hard, isn't it? It's like something is warring against us. Adam had come from the ground and he received nourishment from it. And now that ground, which had been a source of great joy, it would become a source of great pain. All work now in human culture is a challenge. In fact, even though all work, whatever your vocation is here today, we should do it to the glory of God and God can give us favor at work. Nothing will remove this curse of Genesis chapter three on the ground except the second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ that we read about in here in Isaiah, 30, in Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 34, this prophet had announced judgment on the people of Israel because of their idolatry, because they had failed to keep the covenant. God had taken them out of slavery, out of Egypt, now into the promised land, but they began to put their trust in kings and other lands rather than put their trust in God. They were walking in the desert because they were worshiping other idols rather than God. Does that sound familiar to you? They were in the desert because they trusted in other things rather than God. Does that sound familiar to you? Listen, sin always produces a desert in our hearts. If you're walking saying you believe in God, but you really trust something else, give it some time and you will find your heart walking in a desert. Parched for the living waters of God. The people of Israel are walking both in this literal and metaphorical desert. And the promise of heaven is this. If you put your trust in God, here's what you're going to see, Israel. Here's what you're going to see. If you put your trust in God today, here's what you'll see in the future. You're going to see beauty and glory and presence. Beauty, glory, and presence. It's part of the promise of the future. The desert here in this text, it turns back into a garden. The desert turns into a garden. I I love what this commentator says. He says this, Lebanon represents the work of God. Carmel means garden land. The desert turning into a garden and Sharon provides a standard of beauty. Isn't it interesting that we as human beings, we love walking around places that are aesthetically beautiful? It does something to our souls. Have you ever walked around a particular botanical garden and just been astounded at how well cared for and that's incredible? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Okay, praise God. Praise God. Praise God. That sounded a little frou-frou. The botanical gardens. <laughs> I lived in Chicago for some time and there was this really dope garden there and it was beautiful. Or here, you're watching a sunset in Biscayne Bay. There's beauty and it does something to your soul. You know what it does? It anticipates the fully and finally realized kingdom of God that's coming in the future. It ministers to your soul. All of this beauty is a shadow of what is coming. It fills us with hope. It's God taking what is dead, the desert, and turning it to life. And from it, bringing beauty from the same desert springs a flower. And maybe you feel 
like you're in the middle of a desert and it's so dead and you feel like there's no hope of blossoming. But the promise for us and for you is that we have a God of restoration who is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. If you put your trust in the Lord, this is your destination. This is where you're going to a beautiful place beyond your wildest comprehension. And not only will we get to walk in this place that is absolutely stunning, but the glory and presence of God will be there. It's beauty, glory, and presence. You know the best thing about the Garden of Eden? It wasn't that you had an all-you-can-eat buffet of the choicest fruits. It wasn't just that you, you got to work and there was no resistance from um, the ground. It was that God was there with you, walking in the garden. The best thing that awaits for you and me in heaven is that we're gonna come face to face with the presence and the glory of God. Have you ever been to one of those great cathedrals somewhere around the world with engravings on the side and this magnificent artwork? Anybody ever done that? Yeah. Sometimes there's enough gold in a particular cathedral to like sustain the whole city, you know? And they're beautiful to look at, but oftentimes they're just museums. My sister who lives in the northern part of Spain she tells me so much about them. and What remains of the churches is the beauty of the artwork that tells the people about the story of God, except God isn't there anymore. There's no church. It merely becomes a place of beauty, which is great. But what makes heaven heaven is not just that it's beautiful, but that God is there. That's part of the promise, that if you feel far away from him, and even the closest relationship and the closest moment that you've ever been close to the Lord, heaven is going to be twice as much of intimacy with your creator. This is reality. That is the picture that awaits you and me. Those who put their trust in Jesus, this is home, and it's coming. And so what does that do now? It's a promise of restoration, but number two, if you're taking down notes, it's a promise that awakens courage in the present. When you fix your eyes on Jesus and the promise that he has for you, that we need to rehearse that today, like this is what's coming for me. When you fix your eyes on that, what happens is it fills you up with courage now. Look at verse number three. Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees, say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear, here is your God, vengeance is coming, God's retribution is coming, and he will save you. Isaiah paints a picture of what is coming, and because he now understands it, because he can see it so clearly, he now calls the people of Israel to be courageous. And so 
part of what's happening this morning is God's showing us clearly what is coming. And I want you to have a picture of what he's promised you. And the reason you can count in that promise is because God has delivered us time and time again from the past. We have seen his mighty works for thousands of years. There may have been some things that you didn't understand along the way. And maybe you were here and there was a part of the plan that you didn't understand. And you didn't think that it was going to work out this way. But what am I calling you to do? Not me. What is God saying? God is saying this. Strengthen your hands. Steady your knees. Speak. Strengthen. Steady. Speak. Why? Because God is coming to save. If you're here, part of what you looking at the future does for you is it should strengthen your resolve today. Amen? Strengthen your hands. Why? Because God, God has a plan for you. He didn't save you to sit. He saved you to serve him. If you're feeling purposeless today in the midst of Christmas, God reminds you, of his ultimate salvation. He reminds you that he has a home for you, a place where you'll be able to rest. And for now, that vision should remind you that you need to be strong because you have things to do here. You have a purpose. He has called you for some things. Strengthen your hands. Everybody say strengthen. Then steady your knees. Steady your knees. We don't need to walk as if though we don't know where we're going, what the end is going to be. The enemy's going to tempt you. He's going to lie to you. He's going to distract you to keep you off kilter, off balance, to make you question whether or not God has his best interest, um, like your best interest in mind. But God makes us a promise that we can have an unshakable foundation in him so that regardless of what happens around us, we still know that we're going home someday. We know where we're going. Steady your knees. Remain persistent in the work. Right now in our cultural moment, so many Christians are leaving the faith. We have an entire generation dropping off Christianity. They're not steady at the knees. It's difficult to face suffering, but God calls you and me to be persistent because there's a promise. Strengthen your hands steady your knees and then number three speak with courage to one another encourage one another it says in the text say to the cowardly do not fear because here is your god vengeance is coming what you may need to hear from somebody today after church you may need to hear a word of encouragement and somebody saying god still has your back he sees you he knows you be strong I know you didn't get the promotion because you chose to have integrity in the workplace. Be strong. Be courageous. Strengthen. Steady. Speak because God is coming to save. Amen. I don't know about you, but that fills me up with courage this morning. That in the midst of the suffering that we're facing... As we have a vision for the future, it can awaken courage inside of us today. The promise of the future awakens courage in the present. And it's incredible, the work of salvation that is fully realized in the end in heaven. Look at this. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer 
and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God is going to reverse the effects of the curse and make everything right again. The promise, part of it, is that God's going to deliver you. And somehow every painful experience that you have faced here on this earth and the shame that you may have experienced because of the things that you have done or the things that have been done to you, every tear that you have shed as a consequence of the sin in the world, he is going to take that desert and that desert will be alive and will bloom again. It will be like streams in the desert. Here's how I know that's true. He already sent his son Jesus once. (laughs) The people in Isaiah, they didn't know how everything was going to work out in the future. This is a prophecy. And what does Jesus do in his first advent, the first coming of Christmas? He gives us a taste of the coming kingdom of God when he fulfills the promise that he's actually the Messiah. Do you know what he says in Luke chapter 4? That's in the New Testament. When Jesus comes, he says, this is why I came. It says in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has already given us a taste of these miracles during the time that he was here, throughout church history, and even today, God is working in incredible ways to display his power and his goodness among us. It's a promise of restoration. It's a promise that awakens courage in the present. So listen, strengthen your hand, steady your knees, speak with courage because God is coming to save. But who is this promise for? Look at verse 8. A road will be there and a way. It will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there and no vicious beast will go up on this highway. By the way, the highway is a, is a theme in the book of Isaiah. They will not be found there, but who's going to walk there? The redeemed will walk on it, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and Zion will flee. Who is this promise for? 
the prophet makes it clear that it's not for everybody. It says that those who are unclean will not travel on this highway. The highway has a toll. There is a price that needs to be paid. You can't just stroll on this highway without your sun pass and then get a check and a bill in the mail. The price of this highway is perfect purity. So then we have to ask the question, which of us can walk in that highway? Who in here has the currency and the past that's actually going to let us through? There's a dude called Alec Motier who says this. The Lord never reduces his standards to match the weaknesses of his people. He raises his people to the heights of his standards. The only way to take hold of this promise is through what preachers have called for years the highway of holiness. And it says here that there's no fools that are going to walk in this highway. I love the plainness of scripture at times. It's like, we're not going to suffer no fools in this place. The Bible tells us, listen, that none of us are holy. Like none of us have what it takes to pay the price to walk in this place. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. No one. God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there's one who is wise. One who seeks God, but all have turned away. Every person, your abuelita who's so amazing, every person has turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. What's the psalmist saying? None of us are totally pure. Nobody has perfect motives and just seeks after God. God always initiates that pursuit. So how are people getting in this highway of holiness? Here's part of the wonder of Christmas. Jesus Christ saw us in our sin. Jesus saw that you needed rescuing. He understood that in order for you to experience what God had for you, in order for you to actually go back to the Garden of Eden, the original design that God had for humanity and for creation, you would have to walk through this highway. But you can't walk through this highway because of your sin. So what Jesus did is he came down and he walked to Golgotha, the place of the skull with the cross on his back. And there between two thieves, they hung him on a cross. And he was pierced for your sin. And it says in the scriptures that he bled so that through his blood you would be forgiven of your sin. And then the stone was rolled away and the world changed. And hope came and became realized so that you can actually experience the promise that God has for you. Peter, that disciple that so famously cut off 
<laughs> the ear of one of the guards that was trying to apprehend Jesus. This is how he puts it in 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What does Jesus do? Jesus walked the Via Dolorosa so that you can walk in that highway of holiness. The only way we're getting to heaven is if we put our trust not in our good works, not in so many things that we have to do in order to feel like good people. No, we're the desert. We need to be brought back to life. And for that, we need to place our trust in Jesus Christ. You see, it says that the ransomed and the redeemed are the ones who walk in that highway. When you have been ransomed, you know what happens? The price has been paid for so that you can actually do it. This is what it looks like in the end. Look at this. But the redeemed will walk on it, on this highway of holiness. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy, joy and gladness. It's so strong, the joy, that it's like going to over. You're walking in the highway of holiness, and you're like, whoa, I, I just, it's overtaking you. That's the, that's the picture here. And sorrow and sighing will flee. Friends, when you put your trust in Jesus, there will come a day when your mourning will be replaced with a song and you will be crowned with unending joy, unspeakable. I want you to think of your best day and multiply it by infinity. And your sorrow will flee and your suffering will end and the spirit of God will overtake you. So who is this promise for? If you've trusted in Jesus and you've given your life to him, this is what's coming for you. Let that strengthen you today. Let that give you courage. Let it give you courage this Christmas. Let it paint a picture of reality for you in the future that this is actually what is most real about your life and about mine. But if you're here, man, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus and you've been curious about who he is, and maybe you wandered into this place looking for hope. Jesus offers it to you freely. You don't have to clean up your act before you go to him. Because like we heard, there is no one that can pay the price for heaven. No one can afford it except the blood of Jesus applied on your behalf. And that's why he came that first time. And he's coming back again to restore everything and make it whole. Are you on that highway? Is this promise for you? Because when you place your trust in him, friend, this is what he offers. And if you're here and you'd say, I want to take hold of that promise this morning, then I want to give you an opportunity right now to trust in him and to be able to take hold of what he's got for you in the future. Would you pray with me?